Please give your attention to God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. I've not done a lot of traveling overseas, but I do know that you have to be very careful about your gestures and body language in other cultures, because something that means nothing in our culture, a gesture that maybe even means something good in our culture, might have a very bad meaning in a different culture. For instance, my wife and I, several years ago, had the chance to visit Turkey for a few days, and... During that trip, we were told before we got there to be very careful not to show the bottoms of your feet, because in Turkey, that is a an insult to the people around you. I've also heard that when you go to Asia, be careful not to pat anybody on the head, because that's a demeaning gesture. If you're in the United Kingdom or Australia or South Africa, don't make the peace sign, Well, at least you can make it like this, but I hear you can't make it like this, or else it's a foul gesture. If you're in a Middle Eastern country, this would be a hard one. If you're in a Middle Eastern country, don't do the thumbs up sign because it's an offensive gesture in many countries in the Middle East. If you're in Brazil, don't do this because it's an offensive gesture. Or if you're in Greece... It's an offensive gesture if you were to do this with your hands. I don't know how they do benedictions after church. (laughs) It's meant to be a blessing, but if you're in Greece, it's exactly the opposite. It's good for us to be culturally sensitive, and that's a challenge, especially for Christians, because we have the good news of the gospel message to communicate to all cultures. And so we want to be sensitive to those kind of social faux pas that we need to avoid. As we look at John chapter 2, really this story here in John chapter 2 is all about a social faux pas, something that caused great offense in the culture of first century Palestine that created an opportunity for Jesus to point people to the good news. The crisis 
Every story has a crisis at the center of it. And the crisis at the center of this story is something that to us in our culture would seem like a small thing. Not that big of a deal. They're at a wedding and the caterers have run out of the wine. But in this very highly hospitable Middle Eastern Jewish culture in the first century, we need to understand that this would have been a humiliating embarrassment, particularly to the bridegroom as the host of the wedding. In that culture, the wedding would begin when the friends of the bridegroom would go across town to the house of the bride, call upon her to come out, and then they would escort the bride in all of her finery. They would escort her through the cities of the town with people greeting them and congratulating her on the way. She would The, the friends of the groom would bring her to the, the bridegroom's house, and then the wedding would take place with the family and friends, and then that would begin a long wedding feast. It would usually last days, sometimes it would last as long as a week, where people would come and go through the course of the week to celebrate the wedding as a part of this feast with the family. And at this feast, during these multi-day feasts, one of the most important symbols of the joy and the celebration of this great event of this marriage was the wine that was served at the feast. We tend to hear wine and wedding feast or wedding reception, and we associate it with drunkenness and outrageous behavior. But faithful Jews knew that drunkenness was a sin, and to them, as they enjoyed the wine appropriately, it was a sign of joy and celebration before God. So, it was a serious social blunder to, in the middle of the feast, run out of wine. It was one of the most important elements of the feast. And you couldn't just, of course, run down to the corner store and get some more. In some situations, it, it was even scandalous, and there are some records that even in the first century, to run out of wine during the wedding feast could actually result in a, in a lawsuit against you. So this was a serious matter. I just want to impress that upon you. It was a serious matter for them to run out of wine at this wedding. And this is the crisis where Jesus begins to show his glory to the world. It takes place in a small town named Cana. Cana was about nine miles from the little town of Nazareth. They are both little towns in Galilee, as we said. Galilee was kind of the backwoods of Palestine. You remember last week in our study, we saw how Jesus had left John the Baptist in the wilderness And he had taken with him John and Andrew and Peter as his first disciples. And then when they got to Galilee, he also picked up Philip and Philip's friend Nathaniel to be his disciples. And immediately after they get there, they end up in Cana. And it might have been because of Nathaniel, because Nathaniel was from Cana. But you get the idea as the beginning of the wedding is described here that it must have been somebody that was either a family member or a close friend of Jesus because Jesus and his disciples are all invited to the wedding. And when they get to describing the wedding, Jesus' mother Mary is there. So very good chance of somebody that was very close to Jesus, either by family connection or a close friend in this nearby town to Nazareth. 
It's interesting that there's no mention of Joseph. Indicates that he probably had died fairly young uh, and was not on the scene. He's from this point on in the Gospels, there's no mention of Joseph. There's also no mention of the bride or groom, which is kind of interesting. You know, all the kind of details that we would want to throw in the story, John doesn't throw those details in because he wants the focus to be upon Jesus Christ. And that's going to be the case as we go through his gospel. You get the idea that Mary must have been somehow, maybe because she was a close family member, but somehow she was involved in the preparation of the wedding feast and the overseeing of the preparation feast because when this crisis comes up, when the lack of wine becomes a problem, she feels responsible to fix it somehow. And then we'll see in a moment, she actually instructs the servants what to do. So she had some position of significance in the planning of the wedding feast. And we don't know if they ran out of wine. If it was such a serious matter, how did it happen? Could have been because of poor planning, but it also could have been just because as guests came and go, maybe they got a lot more guests than they had anticipated. The question you first raise, the story raises is, why did Mary bring the problem to Jesus? What was she thinking? Now, of course, we can't know what she was thinking. We don't know what her expectations were. She clearly seemed to expect him to do something about the problem. Realize that Mary knew what the angel had told her about her son, that he was the son of God, that he was the son of David, the Messiah. She also knew that she was a virgin when he was born and his father really was God. She also had probably by this point had heard about the testimony of John the Baptist And she sees that Jesus is now beginning to acquire disciples. So I don't think it's a big leap for us to think Mary is saying, now's the time. You know, 30 years, this has been a secret. But now is the time for the word to go out to the world that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah that had been promised to all the generations of God's people. Finally, time to reveal his identity. Well, it's interesting in light of that how Jesus responds to her. And as you read the text there, it does sound like he's being rude to her, doesn't it? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Well, first of all, realize that in the original language, the word woman there actually is not a rude way of addressing. In English, it's rude. If I were to talk to my wife or my mother that way, they would certainly take offense. But in the original Greek or Aramaic, as Jesus would have said it, that word was not a disrespectful term. Actually, it was what I think in English, as I looked at all the different commentators and and linguistic works, the word that seems to be the best fit in English is actually ma'am. And you think about, especially down south, how they would often call their mother ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. I will, ma'am. I, you know, it, it was actually a title of respect, but not quite mommy or mother either. So there is a bit of distance there that makes you wonder if Jesus is beginning to say, you need to see me as certainly much more than your son. You need to see me as God's son. And, and her understanding of what that means, I think, is growing. But he's also, as he asks the question, why are you involving me in this? Why are you bringing this to me? 
And as I said last week, when Jesus asks the question, he's not asking for his own information. He's asking to cause the person that he, to whom he's asking the question to think about their own motivation, their own thoughts, their own expectations, to cause them to reflect upon their own heart. And so he's really saying to her, what do you think I came to do? What do you understand my mission to be? I'm not here to save people from social embarrassment. I'm not here to alleviate uncomfortable situations, to alleviate temporal needs. That's not my main purpose in coming. But interesting that Mary did not take his question or his response as a no, did she? She pulled the servants aside and said, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. She expected him to do something. And so at that point, Jesus points out six very large stone jars that would have been right next to the door, either to the door, the gate to the, to the garden or the door of the house. There would be six large stone jars. It says they would hold about 30 gallons each. So just get a sense of that to begin with. 30 gallons in each jar. There's six jars. That's 180 gallons that those jars could hold. And those jars were there as... John points out, for ceremonial cleansing. If you go over to Mark chapter 7, Jesus or Mark actually has an, uh, an explanation of this uh, cleansing ritual that would happen when, in, when people came into to a home. It says in uh, Mark 7 verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, again, this wasn't washing primarily to take away physical dirt, but it was washing to represent the, the dirtiness of the world. That when you came to visit a Jewish home, you were to do a ceremonial cleansing of your hands and your feet which reflected the fact that you were out walking around the world, walking among the Gentiles, walking among sinfulness, and that you needed cleansing, and, and a, a spiritual cleansing, before God. And so that's what this washing would represent. And that's what those jars by the, the door were for. And so Jesus told the servants, take those jars and fill them. And they did so. It says they filled them up to the brim. And then he said, "Take, dip out some of that water and take it to the master of the feast. Master of the feast would have been like the head servant. Or if you're a Downton Abbey fan, like Mr. Carson. You know, that's that's the character. Uh, The the master of the feast is the one who is in charge of the entire wedding feast and was responsible to make sure that everything happened the way it was supposed to happen. And the master of the feast takes a sip of this wine or this water that they thought they were bringing to him, and he says, this is amazing. And he goes to the groom, who was, again, the host of the whole wedding feast, he says, You've saved the best for last. The wine was of such excellent quality that he was amazed that the host had gone against tradition. Instead of serving the best wine at first, when everybody was making their first impressions of how great this wedding feast was going to be, instead he saved the best wine for last because the wine that Jesus created out of the water was of such excellent quality. And then, of course, the whole story wraps up with verse 11, and don't miss verse 11. It sounds like just kind of a transitional verse, but here's the point of the whole story. He says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. 
Right there, you have such a perfect explanation of how John understood the purposes of the miracles that Jesus did. We said last couple of times, we've said how John tends to call Jesus' miracles signs. That's different from the terms that Matthew and Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels, that they tend to use for Jesus' miracles. They use a couple of different words. And they'll, one of the primary words that the, the other gospel will use is the word dunamis, from the word we get, to, from which we get the word dynamite. The word means acts of power. That's what Jesus' miracles were to the other gospel writers. And what some of the, the commentators will say is that the other gospel writers saw the miracles of Jesus as eschatological events. And what they mean by that, eschatology means the doctrine of the end times or the, the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness. And so they would look at miracles that Jesus did and they would call them acts of power, acts that showed that the kingdom of God had come, that the kingdom of God was bursting into the world and the kingdom of Satan was about to be crushed. So that's how they saw the signs of Jesus. But in John, he only, and remember, John only chose seven miracles of Jesus to talk about. And he doesn't call them acts of power, he calls them signs. And so what the commentators will say is that John, when he talks about Jesus' miracles, he sees them not as eschatological, but as Christological. They are signs that point beyond themselves to spiritual truth, and the spiritual truth that they're pointing to is who Jesus Christ is and what he had come to do. That was the purpose of the signs that John chose to reveal in his gospel. And so here you see it in verse 11. He's saying this sign was performed in order that Jesus might manifest his glory. That we might see him for who he is. And the purpose of us seeing him for who he is goes back to the purpose for which John wrote his entire gospel, which is over in chapter 20. Verses 30 and 31, we looked at the very first message in this series. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So understand, that's why Jesus turned the water into wine, so that we might understand who he is and what he came to do. So what does it tell us about him? Well, unlike the other miracles that, G, that John talks about in his gospel, this one doesn't have a clear explanation with it. Many of the other ones do. Matter of fact, the feeding of the 5,000 comes right in the context of Jesus standing before the people and saying, I am the bread of life. And then he performed the sign of turning the bread and multiplying the bread and the fish. And then when he just before he was about to give sight to the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, he announces to the world, I am the light of the world. And as you know, in John chapter 11, just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to Mary, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So we have to look, because we don't have that kind of explanation or clear statement by Jesus, we need to look at the context and we have to be careful not to add in unintended meanings. But obviously, this work, John tells us it was a sign, so it's legitimate to ask, what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, I think in context, the first thing it tells us is that Jesus is the Lord of creation. 
Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. John says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you look at the miracle of changing water into wine, and you ask yourself, if he is the creator, and therefore the Lord of creation, is anything too hard for him? Is anything too hard for him? He created the universe out of nothing. It's nothing for him to create immediately wine out of water. As the creator, he has the power and the authority to overrule the laws of nature at any time he wants. And in that way, this sign is very similar to the multiplication of bread and fish or or walking on water. He can violate his own laws of creation because he is the creator. Satan acknowledged that Jesus had the power to turn stones into bread. And Jesus himself later claimed that he had the power to turn stones into children of Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the very minimum, what this miracle of Jesus changing the water into wine, at the very minimum, what this miracle showed to Mary and the disciples was that they could bring all of their temporal earthly needs to him knowing that he has the power to transform physical reality according to his will. Matter of fact, Mary here, isn't she a great example to us of what prayer is all about? She had a real, temporal, physical, earthly need. And she brought it to Jesus and submitted it to him, laid it at his feet. And she got a response that seemed like no, but she didn't give up on him in prayer. She basically said to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Which is reflective of her own attitude towards Jesus. Whatever he wills, be willing to obey. Lay it at his feet, whatever your temporal earthly need is, lay it at his feet. And then submit yourself to him as Lord and trust in him to do what is best. I think Mary gives us a great example of what prayer is all about. Prayer acknowledges that Jesus can transform cancer cells into healthy cells. Prayer acknowledges that Jesus can turn empty bank accounts into full bank accounts. Prayer acknowledges that Jesus can transform broken relationships into healthy relationships. Jesus can transform physical, earthly reality according to his will. And prayer acknowledges he has that power and authority to do that, takes whatever that need is and lays it before him, and then submissively, humbly waits upon him, willing to obey whatever he wills to do. Sometimes he carries out the transformation in response to prayer. Sometimes he says wait. Sometimes he says no. But prayer acknowledges he has all power to do his will. And prayer is that act of submission saying, I trust your will as being what is best for me. So the first thing this miracle shows us is that Jesus is Lord of creation. The second thing it shows us is that Jesus is the Lord of the wedding feast. Jesus is the Lord of the celebration. If you go to a wedding these days, you'll often hear the pastor 
make a reference to this passage as part of the wedding ceremony. It's in many wedding liturgies. Matter of fact, the quote directly from our book, our PCA Book of Church order is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ honored marriage by his presence at the wedding in Cana. And that's an important point. We tend to associate partying with drunkenness and debauchery. But Jesus came to redeem our partying, to redeem our celebration, to give his blessing to feasting when he's acknowledged as the Lord of the feast, especially in relation to the wedding feast. He delights when a man and a woman come together to form one flesh, to be married in the sight of God, he is the Lord of the wedding feast. Because the marriage was designed as a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. And so as we rejoice in a wedding, and we have a wedding feast here on earth, there is always a reflection of the glory of Christ and his love and grace towards the church in that celebration. For the Jews, wine was a symbol of joy and a celebration of God's grace. And as you think about the fact that Jesus created, depending on how you understand the miracle, there are some commentators who think that only the wine taken out of the stone jars was turned into wine, the water taken out of the stone jars was turned into wine. Most commentators think that all of the water in the stone jars, a whole 180 gallons of it, was turned into wine. And if that's the case, then it's clearly a symbol of the abundance of the grace, of the joy that we experience in Christ. As it says in Ephesians 3, verse 20, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power at work within us. And just as... Jesus provided the best wine at the end of the feast. There's always an understanding that as we celebrate the grace of Christ, it only gets better and better. In Psalm 23, it says, You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a way to live life, knowing that it only gets better and better And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our lives actually are spent anticipating a wedding feast. That's what John tells us in the book of Revelation. You know that passage from Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus is the Lord of the celebration of his grace. Jesus is the Lord of the wedding feast. And our lives are spent in hope and anticipation of that great wedding feast to come when he comes again. Which brings me to the third and final point, is that this miracle, I think, is a sign, points us to the spiritual reality that Jesus is the Lord of our salvation. He's the Lord of our redemption. 
Just as Jesus had the power to change, has the power continuously to change our physical circumstances, he has earned the power through his death on the cross and his resurrection to change our spiritual circumstances. As he indicated to his mother Mary, he didn't come to save us from social embarrassments. He says, my hour has not come. He pointed to the hour. And the hour that John, when John quotes Jesus saying that, he's almost always pointing to the hour of his crucifixion. He says, my hour has not come. He had come to redeem his people, to buy us back from slavery. Eternal spiritual slavery and eternal death through his death in our place on the cross. And I think in the context again, it's easy to see that those stone jars that held the water of cleansing for all those Jewish cleansing rituals, part of what Jesus is saying through this miracle is that that water is never going to make you clean. Old Testament Judaism by itself could not make us clean before our God and could not reconcile us to God. The water cleansings of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices, all the rituals, even John the Baptist's baptism, that water could not make us clean. Jesus had to transform that water into his own blood because only the blood of Christ can make us clean. Jesus took the wine of the Passover meal on the night before he went to the cross and he made it the symbol of his blood shed on the cross. He held up that cup from the Passover meal, the cup of wine, and he presented it to his disciples and he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And then interestingly, he points to our hope. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is waiting to drink of the fruit of the vine until he can drink it with us at that wedding feast when he comes again to make all things perfect. This quote is from RVG Tasker, a commentator. He says, Wine, lavishly provided and freely offered, was a fitting symbol of the full salvation won by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. That's why Jesus changed the water into a wine. It wasn't just some trivial little thing to save a bridegroom from some social embarrassment. It was a sign, a sign that pointed us to himself, a sign that said he is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of our great wedding feast, and he is the Lord of our salvation. And as we look to that sign, as we see his glory revealed in it, Then the truth would come home for us is what it says in in verse 11. It says, and his disciples believed in him. It's interesting that this was not a public miracle. From what you, as you read the story, it sounds like the master of the feast didn't know what happened. The bridegroom didn't know what happened. The bride didn't know what happened. None of the guests knew what happened. Only Jesus and his disciples and then, interestingly, these servants were the only ones that could have known what Jesus did. It was given to shore up and strengthen the faith of those who had already begun to follow him. To strengthen faith. This miracle was given as a sign to us as believers to strengthen our faith in the Lord of creation, the Lord of the wedding feast, the Lord of our salvation. He has the power to transform us. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for changing the water into wine. Thank you for bringing the new wine of the kingdom of God. Thank you for the shed blood of Christ on the cross which has purchased our salvation. And thank you, Lord, that having bought us at the cross, he has now invited us to that great wedding feast of the Lamb that will happen when he comes again. Lord, we know that we will walk with you all the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of what Christ has done. Father, strengthen our faith in him. Strengthen our prayer life as we understand that he is the Lord of creation and the Lord of our redemption. May our confidence in him be greater, and may our trust in him be more complete. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.